This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, this is creepy, right? Am I wrong in this? I don't know. It looks like a normal small town to me. Why are we here? Why do we have to stop? I don't think you could find any energy in this shithole. Oh, I thought I thought I saw some sort of like gas station blinking here on the corner, but I think you're right. There doesn't seem to be much activity going around here. We can't keep going the speed of light consistently. We have to cool down every so often, do a fuel up stop, and this uh, this planet seems like uninhabited. Although all these buildings are here, it's weird. There's bales. Is that? Is there somebody sweeping the street? That's weird. Boy, they're way in the distance there. Let's see if we can wave him down. Oh my god, he just got ran over. Oh. Holy shit. Oh god. Oh, you know well, what? I guess... Let's just move on with our lives. Let me just head back to the ship. I don't I don't feel comfortable staying in this place. And we can record our episode from there. I'm with you. Can you put down that glass bottle while you're at it? I don't feel... Oh, sure. Crap! On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. My name is Dave. And I'm The Machine. Sorry about the bloody head, Dave. Uh, this is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although... We do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film The Last Picture Show. Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. I heard about the ball game last night. 121 to 14. Must be pretty near a record. What do you think he'd do if he found us? Shoot us, probably. But mama. Uh, as always, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and It's a Conspiracy podcast. Ooh. Because we are going to be discussing the last picture show here, Dave, I think where we need to first start do you have any type of history with Peter Bogdanovich? I don't know. What has he made? I would probably say that his three most popular films, as far as like name recognition, are this film, Paper Moon, and uh, Mask. Not The Mask with Jim Carrey, but Mask with Cher in it from the 80s. No. Nothing whatsoever. This is going to be interesting too. I've known of Peter Bogdanovich for decades years he actually weirdly shows up in like cameos every so often in other people's things like of, of all films he was in it chapter two for like 
30 seconds. Okay. So he's done like little cameos and stuff like that. He also stepped in when uh, Gene Siskel passed away. He was actually came on for a few guest spots on that show while they were trying to find like a permanent co-host and stuff like that. They should have asked me. So that's basically how I know him. I have actually never seen a Peter Bogdanovich film. So this is going to be a first here. It's going to be a thing. Uh, how about The Last Picture Show? Obviously, you haven't seen this movie, but have you heard of it? Understood its context in the, in the history of filmmaking? Anything like that at all? No. Okay. Well, this is a fruitful conversation then, Dave. Uh, <laughs> again, I have not also watched this movie, although I have heard about it for, again, decades now at this point. It is considered, I, at least I know that it is considered one of the best American films ever made. It definitely influenced a lot of directors after this as far as style and themes, that sort of thing. Also, I know it has a very unique style to it as well, where if you look at the rest of 1970s films, it does not look like the rest of the 1970s specifically. That's all I know about it in general, but I've never actually delved into it all that much. Um, Other than, again, I do know that it stars a bunch of actors, famous actors, very, very young. So like at the start of their careers. Okay. And I think it's going to be fascinating to to jump in and just like discover what this film is even about. Because I don't even know what, what the plot is to this movie, which I always find is better to go in blind and just not have any expectations. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to find out. This is going to be a good episode. We're already on a roll. I feel yep. like we're we're in it. It might well, be 20 I think minutes that town, long. I think that town outside there is just creepy and it's just throwing me off my game here a little bit, Dave. You might know better, but where do all the bales of hay actually come from? <laughs> There's always... Well, you see a, a mother hay bale and a father hay bale get together and then your little baby square hay bales kind of pop out after that. So, and they so mature. The beauty of life, the circle of life, Dave. When they mature, they get to go out into the street and start mm-hmm. rolling on their own. You know, I you know have grown up here in Canada my entire life. Um, not that you haven't. I don't know why I phrased it that way. But uh, I, uh, I went to university in this town called Lethbridge, which is in southern Alberta. Known to be very, very windy. It is that that is the only place where I have legitimately seen a tumbleweed actually do the tumbleweed thing. Walking walking downtown Lethbridge and just seeing a tumbleweed go through the street. I'm like, oh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> All right. It's not a bale of hay. Those are the really big ones. Yes. Yeah. I can tell oh. that you were a city kid and your hatred of small towns knows no bounds. Yeah, I will I will agree with that. Also it would be amazing if Lethbridge was windy enough that could actually roll a bale of hay through a street. (laughs) You know, there were some days I felt like it could. It it gets pretty, pretty heavy down there. Uh, Okay, well, let's do this then, Dave. Let me go and thank some of our sponsors. And then when we return, it'll be us discussing The Last Picture Show. Well, since the machine has enslaved us already, we Mm. may as well... (laughs) (laughs) might as well read some ad copy um we should really point out the fact that equating our plight to actual slavery is a little a little much a little bit uh bombastic one might say is it though is it Uh, yes (laughs) a thousand percent yes one thing we should point out dave you know time is a weird construct when you really think Mm. about it Mm. because it's going to seem like we recorded the rest of this episode weeks and weeks ago, and we recorded this ad copy 
only like a day ago because we don't mention in this episode how Larry McMurtry actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago. The writer and co the the writer of the book and the co writer of this movie. And I think that should be called out. Uh, he's had a huge lengthy career as a novelist and a screenwriter and a bunch of other stuff. So kudos to him. My opinion is you don't you don't you just don't put that in the ad copy. Okay. You know, what's interesting, Dave, a lot of people don't know this. Our entire show is scripted. So, like, this is actually in the script, the fact that you're calling out that we shouldn't be referring to the script. It's very meta. We should, we should call this and Kyle and Dave versus Adlib. Uh, well, I guess I am here to tell you that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences and connects their audiences I'm saying that weird and connects their audiences. Yeah, it sounds audiences. sounds okay in my. It doesn't yeah. okay. It sounds dumb in my head. <laughs> well, connects their I didn't say it didn't sound with, dumb. Uh, <laughs> with uh, sure, okay, with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the delivery of these utilities to your home or business. If you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms before leaving. If you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. You, as the consumer, have the choice of who you pay your bills to. Why not choose your friendly local utilities provider? Learn more at parkpower.ca. You know, who also should find out the terms before leaving? The residents of The Last Picture Show. I don't think they have a choice. Also, I'm not convinced they can read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, their football team is losing like 108 to 5. So, I mean, they're not even good athletically. So no, they knows? can't get out. I mean, they misspelled JC. Dave, do you have yeah, a, what, a person or an entity that you want to talk why about? Why don't I talk about our other sponsorship message uh, from our friends at ATB. ATB was built to help Alberta businesses from CEBA applications to lending information, debt consolidation loans, or deferrals, whatever your business is facing right now, ATB is here to help with expert advice. And with today's economy top of mind in business, stay up to date with The Future Of podcast, hosted by ATB's chief economist, Todd Hirsch. To learn more, visit atb.com. I got a short one. It's pretty good. We just watched it, the last picture show. I don't know what I was expecting. I will say it definitely went against what I expected the movie to be. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It. It reminded me, I don't, I, I don't know what I think about it. I, to be honest with you, when I heard the last picture show, like you just brought up, I was imagining something like, not a circus, but like something about the end of cinema, right? Like mm, something very yeah, yeah. Um, broad. And this is in many ways the opposite. As you brought up, uh, it is a small town perspective. So I'm already biased uh, and I... I don't know. I, I guess I will uh, just say it has some excellent performances from actors, but I think the movie, did, like, it was just confusing. I didn't really enjoy watching it, to be honest with you. I um, Surprise, surprise. Dave doesn't like something. I guess I don't understand the small town ethos, the small town experience. Uh, these people act in very weird 
ways. Like the idea, like even the beginning, I couldn't contextualize any of it. It felt it was, it was kind of boring. Can I say that? Yeah, you can. If, yeah. yeah, if you were bored, then you well, can say it bored. was boring. Except for those few uh, moments, but even those moments come out, uh, you know, smashing your friend's face with a bottle. Like it's just mm-hmm. out of nowhere. And there's a lot of uh, nudity, which was surprising for this yeah. era. 71, That this turns out to be a year where they just let it all hang out. That's like a thing. Well, well, for me, why the nudity is actually a little bit more shocking in this movie I, I I can't go so far as to say gratuitous. I mean, but there is a lot of nudity in this movie. Is that because it is filmed in such a classic way? Like it feels like this was shot like in the 40s or 50s to right. me. It's framed that way. It's it's filmed that way. There's allusions to older films. So when you see nudity in it, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I was not expecting this because you just do not see nudity in those old films. So it's like emulating this classic style, but also still being in the '70s at the same time. So it's, it's this weird hybrid. Was it in the '70s? Well, it doesn't take place, but it, was, I mean, it came out in the '70s. We're talking about the films of 1971. <laughs> yes, didn't feel that way. Uh, yeah, other than the violence, the nudity, and the sort of uh, uh, crass way that people interact with each other, uh, it felt very much like a. I don't even know, 50s, like pre-depression sort of thing. Maybe it's the small town uh, emptiness, but it, it just yes. felt like Great Depression feeling. Everybody was just derelict. Did people well, even work? I didn't even understand how an economy established itself there. Oh, people I think that that's, jobs. I, well, I think that's actually very obvious what's going on. They're, they're either working out in the oil fields because that's what they're coming in from Oh, yeah, uh, they the mentioned trucks, oil fields, yeah. Or they're going into the army. <laughs> Yeah. Or they're trying desperately to keep aboard their really awful looking pool hall. Like that that's your that's your options there in that case. So basically um, this is a movie about Alberta. Uh the plot description says that it takes place in nineteen fifty one, but I mean, again, talking about the last picture show, the films that they're showing, all the films that they're showing are came out in nineteen fifty one as well. Okay. So I don't think you're expected to necessarily know that, but it, at least they're being true to that time. Dave, we are at odds again because I loved this movie. Of course. <laughs> like, capital L loved this. This is not an Omega Man situation <laughs> where it's just like, I I love it, but with a little bit of like reticence. Mm-hmm. I fully love this movie. <laughs> I think that there is so much going on here. It's See, the thing is that it's interesting that you phrase it that way. You're blind spot or your refusal to engage with small town living is fascinating to me because i don't really think this is about the small town really the setting isn't is important in that it is economy that is dying and you're watching and you're watching this community slowly eat itself alive i i really feel like this is this whole film is like a tone is emulating and trying to make you feel something uh, about this time period, about this loss, and and what happens with characters when everything that they expected to happen kind of slowly dies with them. The one person with moral authority in this movie, the Don John, not Don Johnson, Ben Don Johnson, Johnson, nice. I was say. Yeah. <laughs> Nash Bridges, no, um, I would have gone Miami Vice, but it's fine, it's fine. Nash Bridges, the, the Ben Johnson character is like the one character that we see in this movie that has kind of a moral code and is trying to keep the the town on track and then when he dies everything kind of all hits it to a head at one time so there's these other subtle things that are going on i I mentioned how this movie 
inspired so many other filmmakers. I would be shocked if uh, Richard Linkletter was not directly inspired by this film. This felt so much to me like some of the early uh, Richard Linkletter films. Uh, not necessarily in style, but just like the feeling of like, we are just watching characters experience life and they're mm. really, I and mean, we're not really interested in the plot all that much. And, and in fact, the plot is really not important at all. I don't think, I think that's the least important thing about this film. It's these sna uh, snapshots of characters trying to feel something in, in the, in the, in the death throes of their community. That's what it feels like to me. Uh, and I can get more in detail in that, but that's just kind of my overview of this film i think it is meant to be engaged with on that level and not being like what is actually happening plot point to plot point surprise surprise kyle likes something sure i you know i, I think having no context of this sort of it's like when we talked about straight story or or any of these films that are happening in if not yeah rural towns I read about these experiences of these towns that are dependent on a single economy or that are uh, forgotten because the world has moved on or people are all gentrifying or moving into an urban area. But having grown up in an urban area, I've never been able to comprehend or empathize with this idea of, you know, like a old broken cowboy running a shit pool hall and all these fucking derelict teenagers are somehow milling about with nothing else to do except to get drunk, get into things, have sex with gross hookers in the back of a fucking broken car. This is not a world I understand at all. And when you bring up Richard Linklater, this movie, and again, I think this is the context problem, it jumps around a lot. I lost my sense of time. I, I, uh, I couldn't comprehend. No, that's not true. I, I wouldn't say comprehend. I just, I felt like I didn't uh, want to follow it at all. Mm. And the performances are excellent. I mean, uh, from a little research that people were nominated and won Academy Awards is no surprise. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but as a story, as an experience for me, I am, um, yeah, I just, I just felt a little bit at odds with it. I, 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 I was bored. I feel like I was that bored. is such a, I, <laughs> I, you know, this is not the first time you, you have mentioned this, but I just think it's so weird that just for the simple fact of the setting that then you lose empathy for characters. I mm -hmm. think that that is such a bizarre outlook to have. That would be like me. It's like, this is set in the city. I cannot understand anything that these people are doing. And therefore they're not worthy of empathy. I, I just think that's an odd <laughs> sentiment to have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. I, uh, I think there's a sociological phenomenon when you grow up or are around a lot more population dense areas that, your relationship with individuals becomes uh, worn down. And I think that it is one thing, for example, to come from a small town and watch a movie about, you know, the bright lights of New York City and feel excited about it. But it's another thing to, let's say, watch Shaft and understand mm -hmm. what it's like to get ground down and be shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people and feel completely isolated. You know, it's not like when I watch uh, the Cloris Leachman character and, and how lonely she is. I, I think there's a pullback. I think the insinuation is that her husband's either a, a pedo again, a pedophile, a closet homosexual, or just like, just an asshole. But her yeah. desperation, I mean, I don't want to say I have no empathy for these characters. I think maybe a better way to put it is I can't identify with many of them. And so mm. 
you know, the Clarissa Leachman character, I think that's a, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, maybe a classic trope of the neglected woman and she's playing it so well. So, I loved her scenes. I like Jeff Bridges because he's just Jeff Bridges. But as right, that yeah. relationship fell apart, I, I just got, I couldn't even understand how, it almost felt like a, a character, a pantomime of like an angry dude. I, I don't know. I couldn't understand where he was coming from. He was just this out of control, violent piece of shit. And I think the main thing is the main character. I just, I couldn't follow him. He's, he's like an automaton. He, I, I couldn't even feel like he was a human being. I don't know where he's from. He doesn't seem to have a house. Maybe this is intentional for the purpose of the story, but he's, uh, he's invisible through the whole thing. Uh, even when he gets smashed in the face of the glass bottle, and even when he's with this uh, weird named Sybil Shepherd, JC, how's that even yeah. named? Um, I agree. This, no one has named that ever, <laughs> but whatever. Um, yeah. In your face, NSYNC dude. And, um, but wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. JC Chazez, who you're <laughs> referring to, is the letter J, the letter C, and it stands for something else. Like, I, I don't remember what it is. Joe or the founder of the um, uh, department store, you know, or <laughs> or my lord and savior. But the but her name is JC, spelled J A C Y. Weird. There's no single person in the world named JC. <laughs> yeah, we should have <laughs> googled that. Right now. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, all so those- I, I think I think again, this is where I come from with that character. I I won't necessarily disagree with him being. A bit of a blank slate. I, I think that he is, yes, a bit unreadable for most of it. Weirdly enough, I will say that my thing in the film, I thought it was two characters for a bit because I don't know if you noticed this, but in a, a lot of scenes he had like perfectly combed hair, and then in some scenes it was all ruffled and messed. So I actually thought those are two separate characters for like the first twenty minutes of this movie. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I guess they're like twins or something Close, or brothers right? because if you quickly look at the. Uh, uh cast list like his brother is in this movie right uh so i was like oh they must be like twins or something anyways and it got further further like oh no 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 this is the same person okay i was just like misunderstanding what was going on uh regardless though i i think what this really ties into and yes okay because i was born in a small town maybe i'm it's easier for me to tap into this sort of thing you don't need to brag about it coming from a small town your ideas of like opportunity love relationships all those sorts of things are just from such a smaller pool of options that i think it really does uh corrupt your uh ideas of of how the world actually works right when you come from a city a a larger a larger center or something that's maybe even doing economically well there's a lot of opportunities a lot of options out there that you can go to when your town is like a hundred people that's who you have and that's all that you have access to and so that character of Sonny, i feel like yeah gets bounced around and i don't think he could even verbalize to you what he actually wants he knows that he wants to have a relationship why not have it with this person or this person i guess she's more beautiful so i'll jump over to there because that's a, a better opportunity but he, yeah he really does sleepwalk through this because I, do, I don't think that he even knows who he who he is himself or has allowed himself to understand that fully so i found it actually weirdly compelling to, to, to watch him try and figure that out and to be honest with you i don't think he even f- figures that out by the end of this movie uh, i think he's still kind of up in the air about what his future is going to hold what what it really ties into um and i've said this now multiple times is that you see this dusty dirty uh, town that is it doesn't seem like it's going to be long for this world 
And so what do you do when, when, when you live there and that's all you've ever known in your entire life? They're, you know, horrible at, at uh, football and basketball. People think that things that happened like last year happened 10 years ago. So that you have this completely loss of sense of time placement where you are in the world. And I actually think that there's a lot of uh, spillover to what people are feeling like right now in so many parts of the world. Ep- economic depressions, COVID, all that other stuff. It's like what we thought our life was going to be is absolutely not what it's going to be. And how do we figure this out? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the one thought I have is it's possible. I, you know, obviously, we've also never read the book. Mm-hmm. That the main character protagonist, I can't remember his name because uh, I don't even remember that he was in it, is meant to be a blank slate to bring the viewer into right. his experience. But I, I mean, just to put in context, again, this big city mentality, when we moved to Calgary and I was, uh, we called it like a little town just to be Toronto <laughs> assholes. Uh, but when I was working insurance, there was the floods and someone told me I had to go to High River and they're like, it's a small town. I said, well, what is it, like 100,000 people? So this idea of like coming from a place where there's a main street and six shops and one theater and everybody knows each other by their first name, they bring up this, uh, you know, that classic small town dynamic where everybody knows everybody's business. Like we know he's sleeping with this old lady or middle-aged lady or whatever she was supposed to be. Uh, That is not a world I come from. It's not that that stuff doesn't happen in big cities. It probably happens to a more exponential degree, but this is not an experience that I understand. So whenever I see it in a film, I just, I sit there and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've seen this before in a movie. I understand this happens. And this is classic, uh, American films in particular love this thing about needing to get back to the roots. I mean, it might be why they're so racist, but like, (laughs) this is a a, myth building thing about gumption and and what it takes to be American and the the, uh, praised cowboy who kept by his morals and did right by everybody and then fucking had a heart attack. It's, I don't know. I think that's another cool thing that this movie does. And and we'll probably get to this in like context setting here in a moment. Peter Bogdanovich was super influenced by uh, classic Hollywood. So we're talking like your Howard Hawks, Orson Welles, uh, John Ford, those types of filmmakers. And I do think that like those filmmakers did push the envelope as much as they could in that time to like what what's really going on behind the curtain like of of this America that we're we're celebrating. But this feels like an evolution of that where he's emulating their style of filmmaking, but then showing kind of in a very 70s way that we've been noticing, like maybe things aren't as good as we have been telling you all this time. In this town, there isn't going to be a cowboy that rides in and saves the day. It just isn't going to happen that way. And so the, the, this group of people is left to their own devices. And those, devi- those devices turn into vices where it's just like the, the corruption kind of eats itself away into like a whimper instead of like a yell. I can see your poetry classes are going well. That's my best way to, to defend this movie. Uh, but let's get into some of that backstory because there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about, I find, as far as context setting for this film goes. So Dave, The Last Picture Show opened on October 22nd, 1971. It is rated 8.0 on IMDb, 93 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from 57 critics, it is at 100%. And from 10,000 plus users, it is rated at 90%. So you're on the outskirts of this one, Dave. I'm just going to say that. Uh, but uh, also, I will say, to be fair, as we've sometimes said about Rotten Tomatoes specifically, 
those are 10,000 people that probably made the effort to go and watch this movie. This is not like the hugest net that we're throwing this out to for people. Uh, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It can also be rented or purchased from iTunes, from Google as well. Or it can be streamed on everyone's favorite streaming service, Stars. Stars with a Z. Thank you, Stars. I don't know when our uh, sponsorship is coming our yet. Check, but right? Yeah, come on. Come on. Much like most of the films from uh, 1971, there's not much as far as like opening, domestic, etc. But its budget was $1.3 million. And it would go on to make $29 million at the box office with inflation that is $188.9 million. This was the ninth highest grossing film in the United States and the ninth highest grossing movie worldwide in 1971. So not only critically acclaimed, but actually people went and saw this, at least like moviegoers went and saw this. The plot description is in 1951, a group of high schoolers come of age in a bleak, isolated, atrophied North Texas town that is slowly dying both culturally and economically. It stars Timothy Bottoms as Sonny Crawford, Jeff Bridges as Dwayne Jackson, Sybil Shepard as J.C. Farrow, Cloris Leachman as Ruth Popper, and Ben Johnson as Sam the Lion. Uh, anything you want to say about any of those actors? Uh, I don't know. Jeff Bridges is Jeff Bridges. I know. I mean, I mean, I love Jeff Bridges. I've always loved Jeff Bridges. So, I, I mean, the fact that Starman is a highly, you know, acclaimed film, and it's called Starman, tells you everything you know you need to know about Jeff Bridges. I also <laughs> joke he probably should have got an Oscar for Iron Man because he's he's awesome. Anything he, anytime he appears, even in this movie, he just has this. Well, yeah, even in films I don't like that he's in, he's always like a good part of that movie. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, he's great. (laughs) Um, Um, Ben Johnson, if people don't know, if you're you're not familiar with that name, he goes way back into Hollywood lore. Like he was essentially uh, John Wayne's like second build for so many of the John Wayne films. And then pushed himself to kind of go away from that and to go into these other films. Uh, Rio Grande... Was he in Stagecoach? He's in so, a bunch of those old like Western films Shane. that are Shane. Mm, yeah, that's yeah. the other big one. He's like, yeah, he was a cowboy. Apparently, he got into stunt riding because he was delivering horses as a ranchman to a Howard Hughes film. And Howard Hughes is like, well, that guy's good looking, tough, and he's real good with horses. Why don't you come and uh, wrangle horses for the movie oh. company? By the way, those three things are on my Tinder profile. So, <laughs> And then they're like, hey, you know what? Why don't you be a stunt double for uh, John Wayne, who clearly can't ride a horse if you're watching yeah, the movies. He, he's not looking too good. And then it was, is it John Ford? Who was like, you know what? You could be in the film yourself. And then he's got mm-hmm. this story. He like produced two movies a year till he died. Something yeah. like, it's crazy. In, in the, into the 90s, yeah. like he worked. Yeah he, yeah, he worked a long time. The other thing about him that's interesting is... Uh, he he won. He was like a competitive rodeo guy. He took a break from acting to win a rodeo or something like that. That's a yeah, he, yeah. He was an actual. I forget what he did in the rodeos. I, but. Uh, I don't understand it. Something with horse or cows, whatever it is mm. that you folk do at rodeos, uh, ropes. You you torture small animals. Whatever it was, he was really good at it. And uh, <laughs> I I just like the chuck wagons. That was really the only thing I enjoyed watching. Crushing other horses so that a a person cr- no I I won't do that. So. I already did. He apparently was like this great uh, rancher and uh, real estate almost mogul. They said when he died, he was worth over a hundred million bucks. Oh wow, it's fascinating, right? He's like he's not a one trick. He's not he's not a one trick pony. 
I can see your joke writing classes aren't going well. Ellen Burstyn's interesting. I mean, I don't really know. You must know a lot about her because she's in, you know, she was in The Exorcist and music. She's got a ton, yeah, she's in she's- ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although I think uh, famously she has yet to win an Oscar. No, she has an uh, Oscar. Oh, does she? Okay. Yeah, she's got a, she's, the, what do you call it? Triple Crown. She's got a Tony. She's got an okay, Oscar. But, she's got but, Emmys. Oh, so it's just the Grammy then that she doesn't have. Yeah. She's like one away from an EGOT. That's right. She like yeah. was, she was nominated as many right. of these actors seem to be for orating books, which is mm-hmm. not my world. I don't participate in public oration. I don't, I don't really do the whole book thing. Uh, but the only thing I dug up, well, not uh, that's apparently uh, well known, is when she was in The Exorcist, she broke her butt. She fell and broke her coccyx. Her coccyx, yeah. And that take is in the film because she actually screams because it hurts yeah. so much, and it caused a permanent injury, which I think is crazy. Oh, wow. I love The Exorcist, by the way. I know yeah, you'll never watch it unless the machine makes us watch it. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great horror film. Um, different again it's a lot different than what i think a lot of people think that movie is actually about and then um let me just double check cloris leachman i, I just found i didn't even know this i mean she's she died of COVID this year yeah this year yeah, yeah. she only passed away like a couple of weeks ago uh, as we're end of january or, yeah yeah but I, I didn't even know that because she's awesome and i thought she's great yeah. uh, i mean i know her First and foremost is Phyllis from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Like that's a lot of how I watched her. She was on Malcolm in the Middle for quite a, and in a bunch of the Mel Brooks comedies is also how I know. She's Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein. She had a great career, um, is also an EGOT winner, I yes. think. Eight uh, Emmy Awards. Like yeah. she, she was a real those deal. up. Yeah. And um, for the younger folks, just going back to Jeff Bridges, Jeff, speaking of comedy, Jeff's dad, Lloyd, is. A genius. Oh, yes. <laughs> and of course, his brother Bo is still Bo. out and working. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways. Um, oh, and then Sybil Shepherd. So, honestly, my only context of Sybil, like she, she was a big thing here in the 70s because I know she started off as a model uh, and it was brought into this film. I really only have knowledge of her from her sitcom in the 90s called Sybil uh, that also had Christine Baranski, who I'm like head over heels in love with. I love Christine Baranski. What was hilarious in when I was watching that, because I watched like every sitcom back in the 90s, because what else is there to do in Rocky Mountain House? But um, in that, she's playing like um, a, a kind of fake version of Sybil Shepherd. Mm. Uh, but they always like reference like, like how famous she is. I'm like, I don't know who Sybil Shepherd is. <laughs> like I had no context for who she even was. Um, cause I had not seen moonlighting earlier in the decade. So yes, oh. Sybil. Yeah. <laughs> Sybil is how I know Sybil Shepherd. She's pretty. She's mm-hmm. a very good looking woman in this film in particular, although she's supposed to be like 16. Who knows? Uh, well, uh, it's hard well, to I tell. Think they're all, no, I think they're all supposed to be seniors. So they're all graduating at the same time. They're supposed to be 18, um, 17, 18 probably is what they're supposed to be. The femme fatale of this film. Yeah, that's all I got through. The, the cast is huge. I, the cast is uh, huge, yeah. Um, and they all would go on to do, most of them are, curves. well, again, except Cloris was even alive up until recently, but like most of everyone is still alive from the making of this movie, which is, and still making stuff, which yes. is also like interesting. So this movie was written by Larry McMurtry and Peter Bogdanovich based on the book, The Last Picture Show by Larry McMurtry, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. So Larry McMurtry 
is a very well-known American writer. He's a novels, essays, screenplays. Outside of this film, for modern viewers, depending on your age, I would assume that he'd be, or that you'd be either aware of Lonesome Dove, which was a huge miniseries in the 80s and 90s, and book series too. But he also helped to adapt Annie Prue's novella Brokeback Mountain, along with Diana Osana. So he helped co-write that. I loved him because he won Best Screenplay that year at the Oscars for Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> and he wore jeans and a bolo tie. I'm like, that's how you do it. I would love to, <laughs> I would love to go to that ceremony and not have to wear a tuxedo. However, even though he made a name for himself doing like a lot of Western novels, he went to Stanford University to study fiction writing. He had Professor Frank O'Connor, Malcolm Cowley. Uh, some of the other people in his class, though, were Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Peter S. Beagle, who wrote The Last Unicorn. So there's a quite a <laughs> bit of talent there inside of that one class. We, he'd already had some success by the time that this movie came out. His 1961 novel, Horseman, Pass By, Horseman. was adapted as HUD, starring Paul Newman and Patricia O'Neill. And his 1963 novel, Leaving Cheyenne, was adapted into the movie Love and Molly, starring Anthony Perkins and Bo Bridges. So he'd already worked with one of the Bridges clan. So The Last Picture Show was his third book, and luckily, the wife of Peter Bogdanovich, Polly Platt, was given the book as a gift and believed it would make a great movie and then showed it to her husband. So, Dave, did you listen to that podcast episode I sent to you? No. Of course you didn't. Okay, this is where I need to tell people a, a huge, huge recommendation of going out and finding the podcast. You must remember this. They do, a, they do deep dives into stories of Hollywood's first century, and they did this mini-series about Polly Platt earlier, or I guess late last year, that is super fascinating because it, it's uh, really about somebody who had this role in making a bunch of great films, but that doesn't really get the recognition that she deserves. So if you want to find out way more about Polly Platt, how she influenced the making of this movie, as well as like the next couple of Bogdanovich films and some other stuff uh, within, uh, within Hollywood, dive into that. It's, it's super cool. However, so she gives a book to him. Bogdanovich had already had a bit of success. So he'd originally been this film critic in the early 1960s. Again, we said being a fan of these classic directors. He was also hugely influenced by French New Wave, especially Francois Truffaut, who also started as a film critic before becoming a filmmaker. So much so, he was influenced by this, that in the late 1960s, he uproots his family and moves to Los Angeles. This is where he runs into Roger Corman. Dave, do you remember who Roger Corman is? Okay. I'm, I'm glad that you verbalized that for this audio podcast and didn't just uh, shake your head. No. Okay, so we've sort of talked about Roger Corman before, uh, even though he's often thought of like this more successful Ed Wood. He was like one of the most influential filmmakers because even though he made cheap films, to put it nicely, he also allowed young directors to get their start. So people like Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, Jack Nicholson, and Peter Bogdanovich all started with Roger Corman before going on to other things. Bogdanovich's first film and I'm liberally using finger quotes here, is Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. Ooh. Um, I'm hurting my fingers making quotes because he really didn't direct anything. Uh, this, what happened, I, by the way, I watched this film this week. This is why I know about this. 
Corman had bought a Russian science fiction film. Awesome. Okay. And then dubbed it into English really badly, but he dubs it into English. But he was advised by the purchasers that in order to sell it, he needed to sex things up a bit. So he asked Bogdanovich just to go to the beach and film some scenes with some beautiful women, insert those into the movie, and then Bogdanovich recorded some voiceovers to make sense of how everything kind of fit together. Classic. It does, it does not help. It is an awful movie and nobody should watch it. It is so bad. Okay. But then Corman gave him a bit of a budget to make something that he actually wanted to make. This again is where his wife, Polly Platt, comes in to really shape things a lot. That movie was Targets, a movie I also watched this week. Oh, my God. It is great. I really liked it. So it is one of Boris Karloff's last movies that he appeared in. It follows two seemingly unrelated stories that eventually cross paths. So one story is about this longtime horror film actor feeling defeated and wanting to retire because nobody wants to watch what he does anymore, especially when the modern world is much more horrific than this the Victorian and scary films he'd been making. Perfect casting, getting Boris Karloff to be in this film. Boris Karloff scares me. The other story is about a young war vet who snaps and goes on a shooting spree in Los Angeles. Um, and though they eventually cross over with those two storylines, it still holds up as to why I think smart gun legislation is needed. And that is the only political statement I'm going to be making this wow. episode. But wow. um, it was fine. It was, it was a good movie. Uh, so that film found some modest success and it brought him into the orbit of some of his heroes like Orson Welles and John Ford, who would now come in, advise him, talk to him. That allowed him to make this well-received documentary about John Ford's career. Uh, which I have not watched, but is free on YouTube if anyone wants to go and check out that documentary. So with the success of Targets uh, and getting more uh, attention from Hollywood, another person whose attention that was peaked was Sergio Leone. You know who Sergio Leone is though, Dave, right? Yep. Great, what did he uh, make? Spag so, it's so racist now, eh? Spaghetti Westerns. Someone's mm -hmm. going to get upset about that soon, but uh, he made all of them, all the good ones. Yeah. yeah. I, I prefer chicken cacciatore westerns, wow. but that's just me. Don't do that. Lasagna. Um, lasagna. Lasagna westerns. So Sergio Leone gets interested. Uh, so he flies Bogdanovich and Polly Platt out to Italy so that he could direct a film that Sergio Leone was beginning to workshop and work on. Two things. One, a language barrier because Sergio Leone did not speak English. Um, interesting enough, because he made a bunch of movies in English, but I, he doesn't I, speak English. Neither, neither do cowboys. That's true. No, that's uh, There's a bit of a personality clash, too. So Bogdanovich was eventually fired off of the film. Sergio Leone took over directing duties, and that movie, Duck, You Sucker, would also come out in 1971. So who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about that movie, but that is up to the machine to decide. So he comes back to the States. Um, his wife gives him this book. He's resistant at first because he feels like he doesn't know anything about small town America. Feels like our relationship, Dave. Um, <laughs> but his wife counters that this is really about the, fe be the feeling of being left out. That feeling confined somewhere where you couldn't flourish. Uh, and finding a way to get out of that is something that he absolutely understood. Plus, his love of classic film would add to the artistic touch that the story needed. So... He says, okay, I want to make this. They don't really have enough money to buy the rights. So Stephen Friedman, a lawyer at Columbia Pictures, who wanted to break into the film industry anyways, gets in contact with him and says, okay, I'll buy the rights, which he does. 
Bogdanovich places him as producer of the movie. McMurtry and Bogdanovich collaborate on the script. Polly Platt helped out with location scouting, production design, wardrobe, and hair and makeup. Uh, so this is very much an independent feature where they were kind of doing a lot of the stuff themselves. And of course, as we've already discussed, it features a bunch of young talent that you've heard of. Not to get into the, the salacious tabloid story about this movie, but it kind of needs to be said that during this movie, Bogdanovich starts an affair with Sybil Shepard. And everybody knows that on set. This is a very small town living, is what this movie kind of eventually becomes. This would break up his marriage with Polly Platt, eventually end their artistic collaboration, because wildly, she still works on his next film, Paper Moon. <laughs> so even though they've separated, they're separated, he's with Civil Shepherd, she comes back, works on the next film with him. This would be received extremely well at the time, both critically and financially. It would be nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best uh, just, Director. Just quickly, this being the film and not the affair. Yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> no, the affair would be at the next Academy Awards, you know, including Best Picture and Best Director. It won two of those awards, both for acting, Best Supporting Actor for Ben Johnson and Best Supporting Actress for Cloris Leachman. So that is kind of the backstory and how this film got made. Any, uh, any commentary from you, Dave? Oh, the one thing I dug up is Ben Johnson did not want to be in this film because he thought when he read the script that it was too lewd. And mm -hmm. then um, I think John, is it John Ford wrangled him, wrangled him back? I love it. Wrangled him wrangled. back in. And uh, he did it on the condition that he rewrite his lines and then he won an Oscar for it. So that dude, right. that dude's got, he's got the chops, man. He knows. He, he knows. knows what's going on. He is. Down. He is such a, like a, a forest in this movie. And he's not in it for super long, but like his scenes are like some of my favorites. The, I mean, the other side, I didn't, uh, not that I wrote this, that the machine wrote this, but the other thing that I know about uh, the making of this movie from the podcast I listened to is the other person that gave advice was, again, Orson Welles. Oh. And Orson Welles told Bogdanovich not to make this movie because it was uh, basically a pornography that he was making. And Polly Platt had to really say, like, no, like, you have to make this movie type of thing. Uh, but apparently Bogdanovich was easily swayed by the big directors in his life to, like, do different things that may not have been his best career choices. There's a theme. It's interesting. You know, the word pornography and... Uh exploitation and stuff has come up quite a bit in our first foray into 71. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was thinking while I was uh, criticizing small town living, if this movie is sort of the groundbreaking film to show that small town living is not idyllic, then I can understand why people would prize it from a critical perspective. It's just that that's been done so often now that I, I'm not attributing it as a groundbreaking film in this in this sort of storytelling. It doesn't mean I enjoyed it any better, but it is interesting. It keeps coming back. Like we talked about, yeah, everything from Shaft to, to Sweetback or um, right. even Andromeda Strain. All, everything we've watched other than Omega Man have been these uh, ch culture challenging um, projects where people are given yep. this license to be like, you know what, maybe I should make a film that people may not actually like, but um, that has some uh, kernel, uh, passionate kernel of truth that I might be able to pop over this kettle. No, I got right. nothing. Well, I mean, no, I, I think what, what you're keen in here, and it's something that I had to keep top of mind as well, is like what is revolutionary in one year, 20 years later is not necessarily super revolutionary anymore. So if you have seen 
15 imitators do the same thing and then finally go back and watch the originator of some of those tropes or some of those ideas, then it doesn't feel as fresh anymore. And I think sometimes that is a, a, um, not necessarily a barrier to entry, but it doesn't make you as enthusiastic about it. I am not saying that people should automatically be like, well, it was the first to do it, so I'm going to give it a higher grade. Um, I see people do that a lot of time with like Snow White, for instance. Well, it was the first full-length animated feature, so it has to be rated super high. Um, it's like, well, I mean, you still have to like enjoy the experience, though, as a modern audience. I happen to enjoy the the well, enjoy is it maybe a, a weird word, but I appreciate this movie. I like Take this movie. In. Did you take some pleasure in this film? <laughs> but but I mean, I think that uh, we've mentioned Orson Welles now a bunch of times on this episode, but I, I take a look at that for Citizen Kane, right? Is that I still enjoy that movie just purely on the movie itself while also understanding it's like, yeah, he was like doing different camera angles and he was doing all these innovative movements and acting styles, which yes, to a modern audience is me like, well, of course, like I've seen this in every single movie that gets made nowadays. But if that's not the only thing that I find interesting about that movie, Citizen Kane, or even this movie, The Last Picture Show. For me, I think that the movies, to retain any semblance of um, resonance for modern audiences, have to be more than just like, oh, we did this thing. I, I think that that might hinder maybe a film such as like Avatar, for instance, uh in the grand scheme of things right it's like yes it was like it was amazing 3d like it is some of the best 3d i've ever experienced in a theater yeah but like am i gonna pop on avatar tonight and watch it probably not because it's not like the story that made me enthusiastic about that also things that rely on uh technology often get dated fairly quickly very quickly yeah but, you know, just quickly to that point, we don't want to stray too far from this movie itself, but I think, so we learned, I learned, we learned that this is another film that's been archived in the, uh, what is yes. it, Congressional History of Film or whatever the Correct. thing is called. But we've also talked about, on top of that, this uh, difference between a cinephile watching a film versus a, a broad audience. Not to be too elitist, but when you're looking at these contextual pieces, you can draw yeah. Uh, pleasure from different aspects of a film. But as a movie, uh, just as a quick example, uh, I mean, Helen wouldn't watch Orson Welles, but she has a staunch, my wife Helen has a staunch thing against old black and white films. And I wrangled her into watching Casablanca and she fucking loved it. There are some movies that can transcend their contextual, you know, like groundbreaking, great performance also, and actually still remain good movies. And you know, yeah. we know some of them. I mean, even the, some of the Sergio Leone movies, as fucking long and drawn out as they are, yeah, 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 uh, are still uh, generally watchable and could still perform well in a theater. Matrix, we felt like that. Uh, you know, yeah. there's a couple of movies that even if they rely on a little trick, they can still come out on top. This is not a movie that I felt that way. I, I learning about this, discussing it with you. I, trying to put aside my so-called big city biases, I still don't think that I would tell someone to sit down and and watch the last picture show because it's going to give you a real kick. It's not, you know? Most people are not going to understand why they even have to watch this film. By, by the way, when you wrangled your wife, what type of lariat did you use? <laughs> I've been trying different <laughs> lo- knots, but they all slip. No, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't understand um, anything about ropes. <laughs> <laughs> the... I, I, yeah, I, that's an interesting thing that you just brought up, like modern audience coming at this for the first time, not knowing any of the contextual history. 
like I, I may tend to agree, but I, as you delve deeper into film and different types of films, this this feels like a high a high point in the type of like it is slow moving. I will admit, but I was engrossed the entire time. When you say bored, I wasn't. I was totally engrossed this entire time because it's like, ooh, like the feeling this movie is giving me is like like I want to see how this ends. Like it felt like a slow moving car crash to me, but it's like I still need to know how this all recuperates or recuperates that um, resolves uh, itself. Resolves itself. Uh I'd like to recuperate. Where's my <laughs> yeah, recuperation maybe. time? Yeah. Uh for for me, and I know this is just a me thing, for whatever reason, a lot of black and white films for me make them feel timeless. It's it's a weird thing for me, whereas a, I find that a lot of color films, it immediately mean for me is like, oh, I know when this was made. <laughs> like it's a seventies, eighties, or nineties film, and I can immediately tell that by just looking at the film. Whereas a black or white film, by and large, I'm like, okay, there's something about this that makes this more dreamlike, uh, that makes me feel like I'm I'm entering into like a different world more so than a color film. And because I think like this was made in the 70s. But the film takes place in the 50s and it feels like still kind of modern to me <laughs> as far as like uh, acting styles, choices, that sort of thing. Like if you told me that this film, yes, is in black and white, but actually came out in 92, I could believe you because there's nothing about this movie that makes me believe that this was filmed in the 70s specifically. So there's something about that, that this makes me feel, it makes it feel a little bit more timeless for me. You're certainly taking a lot of time to talk about it. The, the, the big thing that I want to propose here, there is a, I think it is Ellen Burstyn who says this in the movie to her daughter, Sybil Shepherd. She says, everything gets old if you do it enough. And honestly, I think that is the central thesis to this movie, where things that seem new at one time become very old hat the older uh, that you get so things that seem odd maybe to the viewer like teenagers going to a pool hall uh having a relationship with your coach's wife that sort of thing to this movie is like by the end of it everything feels like yeah like i'm just doing this uh i'm uh, i'm just getting by like none of this is like salacious or weird to us because everyone is doing it this way and now it is it feels like old hat quickly on the uh let's call it cinematography and yeah. when you i mean and i'm sure there are uh, many academic photographers that'll be annoyed that i don't understand the terms but when you study sort of color theory and the difference between black and white and color human beings associate colors um, both with emotional responses and as uh, compliments, so often with a color film, and now we almost rely too much on uh, on toning, but you can tell a uh, the film's era because of the color palette and tone that they mm -hmm. choose. But also when you take away color and you're left only with contrast, uh, your brain uh, views images in a different way. And so if I take a picture that I've created and I view it in color and in black and white, uh, the picture means something different. Now, associating black and white with being timeless or contextual, I think it's much more nuanced than that because there's a lot of black and white film that, like we watch Chaplin's film, that's not right. a movie yeah, that yeah. could come out you know, today and people are like, oh, I, they tried it with the artist and 
I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, controversial. So, and then as far as the central thesis, I don't know. I mean, again, uh, yeah, maybe I'm over influenced by how this has become a bit of a meme in small town American films. Uh, but this idea of sort of a derelict place, dead end life where everybody is um, sort of lost, just kind of milling around and without purpose. It's it's kind of just how I picture small towns, to be honest with you. And <laughs> yeah, uh, well, maybe, true enough. I, again, I think the trope has become now sure so infused into our lives. It feels very play like to me, where the town is really purgatory. That the the characters are really ciphers for different ideas that the authors are trying to you know push forward, type of thing. So I know maybe that's also part of it. That is like the block is like are these characters or are these ideas that have become human formed like that's kind of how i'm looking at this in a lot of ways yeah I, and this, again i think this is that cinephile argument i mean we brought up with the rotten tomatoes and this has happened with many films we've watched uh in this project in this hell that we exist in <laughs> we are in our own purgatory here dave <laughs> um yeah what does it take for someone who's going to review a movie to actually want to be in public to proclaim that they understand a film? What is it that they bring to watching a film that they would uh, attribute a play, like the conceptualization that each of these characters re represents a different part of the human psyche? And there's definitely a place for that. And I do that often as well. But this is a, this is a film that I can understand that you would, uh, eat, like you or people and critics could read this film that way. So I, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I don't hate this film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a thing that I wrote on my own personal letterbox is like, I mean, it is based on a book. I know that, but it feels very much like a book where I can return to it and find different things every time I watch it because I was like, oh, I'm going to notice something different every time I come back to this and view it. So I'm excited about that. Not to belabor the point too much, but again, just talking about the black and white photography of this movie, like... I, I think this should be compared to something like Mank that came out last year. Did you watch Mank by not any yet. chance? No. So I did not like Mank very much for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the big reasons was that it's like, oh, it's filmed in like the it's filmed in the style of like 1941. Except it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, it's in black and white for sure. But I can tell that that's a red camera that you're using. Mm. And you filmed it in color and just changed it into black and white. Yeah. That is different than actually filming it with black and white stock. Um, and I could not get over that. It's like, this doesn't look like a 1940s film. It's too smooth. Like, it's shot in like 60 frames per second. Like, this is not a 1941 film. Whereas this film, I think, is able to do that magic trick a little bit. It's like, this feels like a movie from the 50s sure. or, or late 40s, but wasn't. <laughs> And is able to utilize that mentality that people are like, I'm expecting this to be this thing, but we're going to actually turn a corner and be like, we're going to actually be a little bit more dire than what those films would allow uh, filmmakers to be. Um, so I just yeah. want to make that point before we ended this episode. No, I think that's that's a great point. I think especially as we, maybe it's because we also were kind of discovering this film fairly early in our foray into 1971, having come from 1999. So uh, yeah. visually... It's difficult to kind of piece things together, but uh, in this context. But you're right. I mean, when I'm watching this film, you get the feeling that it's shot in the 50s or 40s or something like that. Um, it compared to some of the other 71 films that we see that are experimenting with you know, oversaturated colors and these weird like camera tricks. This is a very classically framed film. 
I'll also uh, concede the point. I don't know. I'm I'm proud of this. I I hate or I did hate digital film. I, I mm. when that started becoming a thing, I would get so uh, loud about it because I love that old grain film stock. The 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 24 frames a second, you know, there's just this texture to it. And now that we've done this thing, photography is the same thing, where everything's about, it's all dick measuring, right? It's like, how many more K? How many more pixelization? You know, like, how little noise can I make? Are you a make? good coxman is really what <laughs> yeah. you're asking. And then, they, and then they do this reverse engineering. They're like, well, maybe this does look a little fake. Why don't I add something in post-production that that uh, makes an effect like it used to be? And you can you can see it. Helen gets annoyed because I'll watch a film and be like, "That's CGI. That's green screen." Like I I don't know why. I just can't I can't get can't lost in a lot of films. Yeah, I'm an asshole. Well, uh, not to get into too side of it, uh, too much of a tangent um, because you're old and I'm getting close to that. Welcome. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as like I hate digital film, but I think I hate what you're talking about. Yes, I don't like it when they try and like add digital effects to make it do something like well then just film it that way if that's what you're going for just film it that way and have it be that way my biggest thing now talking about color theory is i find like so many films are so desaturated yeah it's just like i don't like i don't know like there's no vibrancy here there's i go and look at the film from the 80s or 90s whether it's good or not is another question but it's like at least like it feels alive it's like Oh, here's another like desaturated, like morose, like nothing happening film. It's like, ugh. all right, I guess I am. It's, this is maybe why I get so like enthusiastic when I see like a Harley Quinn movie or something. It's like, at least there's color yes. in it. At it least will, I f- there's something about this movie and it's not just like bland something, uh, a bland artistic endeavor. It's over theorized. So we're at a stage now in filmmaking where we've quote unquote learned so much about what the human eye can perceive and how it absorbs color that when we look like when uh, film creators look at uh, films from the 80s, like everything's clashing. It's why this feels so cheap because you can't have, you know, blue, green and yellow in the same frame because nobody knows where to look. And, and, you know, and in some uh, sense that is true, but it loses that magic. And now we're doing this. A toning thing where well each each scene we put a green palette on it because we want you to feel sick or we want you to feel envious we want you to get it's you know it's overdone it's overwrought with a w-r-o-u-g-h-t it's overwrought and yeah. i think um yeah we're just i think this is all creative endeavors we've hit this wall where it's hard to and disney's got this problem it's hard to find an original way to tell a story anymore and so I will give this film credit if the context is this is one of the first films that is trying to poke at the bubble of that FBI controlled conspiracy that American life is perfect and everybody wears this dress and prom is the greatest thing that you can do and right. go and cheer for your fucking football team. and Prom was the greatest night of my life. I was beautiful then. If that's the case, then I'll give this uh, movie a little bit more credit than I was originally giving it. But- you know, eh, I, that's how it finished. <laughs> well, no, I was that's, like, yeah, that's, that's fair. Fine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think this is where we kind of need to end off this conversation because one movie I could be like, okay, it would happen in this one movie. It happens in two movies. And I'm like, okay, weird. And now it's three or four movies. It's happening. I'm like, okay, now this is a trend. Like there's something going on here in the culture We're doing the- that, uh, that we need to address, which is, like this is a yet another movie that deals with pedophilia. Yeah. 
And I'm like, so what is going on in the early 1970s that so many films are, are, are either actively doing that and not commenting on it or seeming to hand wave it away like this movie does? Like, th- there's, to be what? fair, it's not an adult that's doing it. Well, let me back that up. Well, so the, the main one is the young religious kid who is supposedly 17, 18, maybe 16. Kidnapping a little girl, a baby, yeah, a baby, to go into his van and show him her privates, which is like super messed up. But then our main character, Sonny, literally says, I think elsewhere in the movie, it's like, well, he didn't actually touch her, so it's okay, yeah, or something like. What are you talking about? Like, I do not get this mentality. Um, And then, I mean, you can talk about like the older man and Sybil Shepherd. Well, the coach, the difference they had that one little is, scene, is that, the coach touches the boy's butt and then he actually right, turns yeah. around. He's like, what the fuck? And then just leave it. They're like, yeah, that happened. Let's move on. Yeah, it's it Cuba, Cuba. Uh, but I was just going to say like, there's the older like friend of the mothers or fathers and simple shepherd who have sex in the pool hall. Yes. What's a little bit different there is that it seems like, well, Sybil Shepherd is very much in control of that situation. She intentionally does that to try and like elevate her station. So it's like, it's still awkward and weird, but that's a little bit different than being kidnapped into a van. I just, there is a difference there. Um, I, when you describe that, I suddenly thought of American Beauty. But um, yeah. you know, when is Roman Polanski's uh, thing? Is that mid seventies? It's around mid-70s, this era too. Seventies, I believe, is when that trial goes on. Yeah, I think we're getting a challenge to the the idea of like. The idea of even sexual ethics, uh, ethics with drugs, ethics with uh, how we deal with other people, morality, you know, these are all human constructs. So, I th- I'm suspecting, although it is, more offensive, it is more offensive to us because pedophilia is just really not on the books. But this is an era, of, as we've discussed, where, you know, being gay is, is a cr- literally a crime. Um, yeah. You're not allowed to show interracial relationships on, on the big screen or on television. So, we're going to have a culture that's going to be like, fuck all those tropes. Let's, let's just show the world as it is. And fortunately, or like unfortunately, I suppose, given what we believe now, um, you know, the idea of pedophilia is rampant throughout all human history. Often these arranged brides right. were, you know, they were children, right? Uh, if you look at some, if we've, we've ta- have we talked about, yeah, we've talked about uh, royals, when you look at some of these arranged marriages that uh, solidify kingdoms, some of these girls are brought into these families at like 10, 11 years old. And as soon as they're, you know, menstruating, they're asked to bear children like this. If we actually want to dig at this, it's really well, fucking I, I guess where I'm great. coming from is that it seems like there's such a blase attitude towards it here in the 70s. So there's know. like another movie I watched last year was a movie called The Last of Sheila. Um, it came out in 1973. The, the reason I watched it, it's the the one movie that my favorite composer, Stephen Sondheim, wrote the screenplay for. But even in that movie, like, what's great about the movie is that it's a whole, like, mystery, murder mystery thing that they're all uncovering and stuff. And it, that is all kind of cool. But it's revealed that one of the people in that movie is a pedophile. Like, he's what they term a little girl lover is how they actually term it in the movie. And people are like, oh, okay. And they kind of equate that as being the same thing as evading taxes. Like, it's this weird match. I'm like, what is, like, I just, I cannot get over this. How it seems like in the early 70s, an adult male being sexually explicit with a young female minor is just being like, whatever, like shrug emoji. And like, they kind of continue on their day. Whereas like, 
there is not a chance a movie like that could be made today where it'd be like, oh, well, like they touched a girl and it's fine. Like, there's no way. So what was it in the 70s that was like, that's fine. Like, it's, it's okay. Was it, I guess, is it because it's so like inconscionable that this could even happen in the real world that it's easier enough just to push away? Then like, why I bring know. it up I think in the first weird. place, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was in this discussion. I was listening to this discussion about gender norms and power. And it is fascinating. We brought this up with Sweetback. You know, that is beyond the line what happened in that film with Mary Van Peebles yes. and, and the uh, rape. But we but also we have Death in Venice, right? Where we have like literally being groomed. Right. Uh, outside of the movie and inside the movie. And it feels it's very awkward and awful. And then we talked about what would happen if the gender roles were reversed and how this movie wouldn't just be an X-rated, it would be banned. Yeah. Um, I think we're just getting to the stage where, I don't know, like, is this accepted because of the so-called patriarchy? Like, is this accepted in these films because a man is supposed to dominate a woman at whatever their age is? So then you're like, boys will be boys. You know, this is mm-hmm. like, that's kind of the attitude in this. Like, yeah. well, he didn't get through it. Even if he did, you know, that's just how men are. You know, there's, I don't know why they're in the films. There's just something. Um, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just this weird toxic masculinity that still pervades. Maybe. Like to such a degree that it's like, whatever. We saw that. <laughs> Small town life, you know. Yeah, we saw that a little bit in 99, uh, not the pedophile thing, but the violence that we now accept as the norm. You know, like uh, it was bubbling under the surface as art seems to be a reflection of the uh, subconscious psyche of the culture at the time. Mm-hmm. And so maybe in 70, in 71, there's just a growing se- sentiment. Maybe it comes out of the hippie movement and free love in the 60s. I have no idea where this sort of what we would consider perversion is coming from, but it's leaking into these films we're mm-hmm. seeing it in the egregious sex, the nudity, the the appearance of such br- it's brutal violence, particularly for that era, and then these challenging things like uh, you know when should a person be uh, allowed to uh, interact with another person at what age and right. um, it it is it is hard to watch over and over again. I don't know what to make of it, Kyle. Yeah. We are definitely I- not in a position to evaluate it because we are n- neither ethics professors or people who want to stick out well, our necks that far <laughs> not yet uh, um but it's uh, offensive but it's, yeah. I, I, it's just something i want to be aware of because i really want like is this going to be a, is this it just a weird confluence of these films all at the same time here in the first few weeks or is this something that literally pervades 1971 where this kind of keeps coming up again and again and again well if we ever watch a movie like bed knobs and broomsticks we'll see if it pervades in a film of that nature too Disney. Listen, bed knobs and broomsticks fucks. So we did this last week uh, for the first time, which is like looking at critics of the time period to see what they were saying. Uh, so uh, I'm using the same two critics. And if anyone has any ideas for additional critics we could add in here, I would love to hear them. But of the time, Roger Ebert said this, the film is above all an evocation of mood. It is about a town with no reason to exist and people with no reason to live there. The only hope is transgression. Uh, Pauline Kael, like generally liked this, but was actually pretty more uh, a little bit more negative towards this film when it when it came out. Um, as you'll see, talking about the black and white photography, this film badly needs this stylization because, of course, its shallow overview of town life is dangerously close to TV. The movie suggests that a soap opera would be sorry. The movie suggests what a soap opera would be if it looked at ordinary experience in a non-exploitative way, if it had observation and humor. This is perhaps an ideal TV show. 
by the way, made obviously way before the golden age of television where they could get away with this type of stuff. But so that's what uh, some people were thinking about at the time. We're done here. So the, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap up, which I guess brings us to our two favorite questions on this show. Dave, does this film hold up and do you still think it is culturally relevant? I don't know. No, I, I <laughs> it's culturally relevant, I think, because people are telling me that it is so. So, yeah, if you're into investigating Americana, toxic culture, the the broken sort of nature of small town living, then yeah, this movie's got all of that stuff. But for me, I I don't care. Um, mm. So, for me, I don't think that this is a movie that needs to be seen. And with at least statistically the urbanization of the world, I think this, every year that passes, this is going to be a bygone nostalgia rather than anything that's informing us of what we ought to know. There are, like we've discussed so many times, there are so many more evolved conversations and artistic pieces that deal with the broken ethics of human living mm -hmm. and the American dream that I, this is not required viewing for me. And um, if it wasn't for such an amazing cast and great individual performances, uh, this movie for me is, is an absolute no. Um, it's hard to deny that the people that are in this film act their heart out. They're incredible to watch. They're magnetic individually. Well, so yeah, and, and one thing I guess mix. I don't want to blow past. I was going to bring this up and then forgot. What I think this movie also does, which is really interesting, is really show female sexuality in a really interesting way, specifically with the Sybil Shepherd character. Again, this this kind of adds to your point, where it's like, is there anything that a modern audience can glean from this, which has already been done so many times past this? But for the time, showing a person who enjoys sex and is a woman uses that sexuality to her advantage, um, I think is actually pretty bold of a movie to do at this time period where female sexuality was something to be not talked about, shut down, pushed away sort of thing. Um, so I just I, I want to make sure we mention that before <laughs> wrapping this up fully. I think for me, this is a movie that I will want to return to again and again, just like a good book, because I, like I said before, it's going to be something that reveals itself to me over time where there's new things that are brought up every time that I view it. Um, it is not an easy watch. It is not something that you can passively engage with either. I think this is something that needs to be like this talked about, discussed about, like understanding how this works with your worldview or not. So I think it's a great movie and I would definitely think it holds up. I definitely think that there is some relevance to it as far as uh, it's a place in the future here. Like there was a sequel made to this movie. Did you know that Dave? I just saw that on Wikipedia. Yeah. In 1990, there was a film called Texasville, but also directed by Bogdanovich. Most of the cast came back. So that's interesting. I'd like to check that out, see what that feels like. It's shot in color, though, I'm pretty sure. Oh, that's a no-go for Kyle. Yeah. Uh, also based on the Larry McMurtry sequel that he wrote called Texasville. So uh, all the kind of same people there's were involved no way in the that's good. game. There's no way that's good. That's just a recipe for some yeah, George I mean, Lucas shit. Yeah. yeah. There's no way how many sequels that came out 20 years after the original came on are like, no, you know, it's almost better than the original. <laughs> um, so apparently there was an episode of Dawson's Creek that had Dawson and Joey watch this movie Gross. and compare it to their relationships. Nope. So pass super relevant because I'm mentioning it in Dawson's Creek uh, in 1998, the Library of Congress elected it for film preservation for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Um, and then. 
last updated in 2007, the American Film Institute's 100 Best American Films placed The Last Picture Show in the 95th position of the top 100 cusp. films. I'm going to call that yeah. the cusp. The cusp. It almost didn't make it, can, Kyle. So. Can I just add one one thing to the yeah. Civil Shepherd? I, and this is a little unfair because of the uh, time, and I think it's a valid point you make, but I would have liked to agree with you more if her character was not just a villainess. There, there's not sure. a lot to work with her. So she almost uses sex in this sort of like poisonous way. Um, yes, I agree and, with and that. And corrupts everybody. Vindictive way too. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I know perhaps that's the point and maybe this is the male writing perspective. Maybe this is a story they want to tell. Maybe they just couldn't get into it. Kind of like the the coach. Maybe there's more depth in the book. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it is interesting that they're using women as strong here. There are a lot of strong women characters yeah. in it. Even Clarice Leachman, who seems so desperate, has great moments where she's discovering herself. By, by, but, by the way, the nice yeah. story about that, that uh, freak out in the kitchen at the very end, yeah. where she throws the pot, blah, blah. One take, hadn't done any rehearsals, came in and did that. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Won the Oscar awesome. for it. Basically, probably mostly for that scene, but it's yeah. like- That scene yeah. was great. Yeah. That's acting. Acting. <laughs> I love Cloris Leachman. Um, so uh, I'm really curious to know what you're going to rate this, Dave. But that is what Dave and I thought about the last picture show. We would love to know what you think. You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. You should also check out our YouTube page, by the way. We are posting a bunch of stuff, original content over content. there. It's not just the podcast being uploaded over there. It's actually original content. You can see our um, faces. You have to see our faces, react to trailers. Gold. Dave shakes his head at me a lot. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free, though, is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to rating this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give The Last Picture Show? Uh, I think, I think I'm going to go with a three. Oh. To be honest with you, that's higher than I thought you were going to. Yeah, so. I, was, I was sitting at a two and a half because it's not terrible, but I... Yeah. The, the actors are great in this. So if anything keeps you in it, the acting keeps you in it. So I, yeah. uh, I'll go with a three. It's not a 10, right? 10 out of 10 critics on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I also kind of agree with that. I think there's a couple of things that prevent me from being like, this is a completely five out of five film for me, uh, which is kind of, like I said, that weird pedophilia subplot that they put into the movie. And maybe the blank slate of the Sunny character could have been more fully developed. Anyways, for me, I'm giving it pretty high, though. 4.5 is what I'm going to give this movie. Like, I really, really love this movie. And I think that everyone should watch it. Um, but I'm not the only person on this podcast, Dave. So that does mean that that averages to 3.75, which will be lowered down to 3.5 on the letterbox page. But so just with the average number that would place it as the new number one film, unless you want to uh, argue that it should go underneath shaft or, or something like that. No, I, you know, I think um, I'm okay with that because it's, it's not a high number. Hopefully we'll overcome it. Right. Everybody, we can overcome this film. We shall, we shall overcome. Also, it's not, again, it's not a terrible movie. It's just, 
It's boring. I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it, man. I don't get it. Well, we'll see how long this lasts then. So the last picture show will enter our list at the number one position. Well, I guess that does mean that we need to figure out what we're watching next week, Dave. I mean, process of elimination. We've watched three of the best picture nominees of the year 1971 already. I'm assuming it's going to be one of the other ones. So let me push this button. I'm correct. And I'm so excited, Dave. I'm so excited to finally be able to watch this movie for the first time. I know the music so well. We get to watch Fiddler on the Roof. Sounds perverted. <laughs> it's not Diddler on the Roof, Dave. <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, how how familiar are you with Fiddler on the Roof? Nothing. I mean, I've heard of really? it, of course. You've, you've heard some of the music. You must have heard some I of the know. music. I don't know. Well, keep this in mind. Okay. okay. Music theater nerd. Uh, I am not white, so therefore <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. I, when when you bring up stuff that I ought to know, when you bring up the song, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that. But I'm not going to know it by context because I don't right. study this shit, right? Sure. So uh, we'll see. But I am interested because um, I thought... That Fiddler on the Roof was like some four-hour Russian epic, but you're telling me it's a musical, so I'm ready. I'm ready to immerse myself in the uh, fiddling on the roof. Yeah, it's a tradition. Oh, let's get out of this place. This again, it's just creeping me out. And I think there's just a bunch of glass-eyed yokels surrounding our ship here. So maybe let's just get out of here and find another gas station a little bit further down the galaxy. Just to set your face around stun. Are you? Are you more of a Kirk or are you more of a... Because if you're a Kirk, you should stay behind and wrestle with these guys. I'm just going to... I'm ahead to the ship. I'm of a card in the streets. I'm a Kirk in the sheets, Dave. That's uh, that's how I roll. Just with green aliens, though. Just with the green aliens. Prom was the greatest night of my life. I was beautiful then.